Okay. okay. There it is. <laughs> Continue. <laughs> Welcome everyone to episode seven of Sacred Seminary Symposium. I'm here with Lauren R.E. Larkin. How are you, Lauren? I'm doing well, and I'm super excited because this is technically our eighth introduction. (laughs) 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 Two today. There's two. So just as an upfront, I have had a cold that has moved into my lungs and I'm feeling great and I sound worse than I am and it's not COVID. We've all been tested. Um, But as an asthmatic, when I get a cold that moves into the lungs, I sound like a a beast when I cough. So um, hopefully I'll be able to contain it for the episode. Otherwise you're going to be doing some deleting. (laughs) I, yeah, I will, I will be editing anyways. (laughs) It shouldn't be a problem. Yeah. All right. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing all right. Um, I'm off work this week, um, off four days, and I'm telling people I'm going on vacation, and they're like, where are you going? And I'm like, well, actually, I'm taking a staycation. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm trying to catch up on podcast stuff and a bunch of other miscellaneous reading and writing stuff, so. Do you overbook your days like I normally do in terms of tasks? Like, I'm like, today, I'm going to get done 48 things. Um, sometimes, I mean, it's not like this long list of things, but it's, it's, it's a short list of things that are like really intensive and I think I can get all of them done, but I don't. Yeah. I hear that. I hear that. I, um, I have not been on social media this week and I hate to admit how much more productive I am, even though I'm not necessarily on social media a lot during the week, it's just even not even those little glips. I'm like little, literally so much more efficient. And Monday, I actually completed everything. Nice. I know. I know. It's also sad too. But anyway, anyway, it is what it is. So last time we talked about chapter five, solidarity, love of neighbor in the 21st century. Yes. Um, and some things that we talked about in particular were, um, the meaning of solidarity. So like how some people just like to throw around the word, uh, solidarity to just mean a kind of, um, philosophical or ideological position that they're in, in agreement with someone. Yes. Um, and that's not what, um, we mean by solidarity in this chapter. 
another thing we touched on was a conversion of um, uh, oppressors. So at the point of conversion, when they join in solidarity with the oppressed, oppressed, the first thing they do is they actually listen to the oppressed. Um, yes. And another thing we touched on is um, how we can get into perfectionism mode and think that we have to have the perfect strategy uh, for some form of activism or solidarity. Um, but we, but, and then that over analysis maybe keeps us from even doing anything at all. Um, that's yeah. something that I personally struggle with. Yeah, we, um, yeah, that, uh, what is it? Analysis by paralysis? Yeah. Paralysis by analysis. Analysis paralysis. Yes, where you just think and think and think and think and then not do anything. I, I find that in my own writing, but specifically in regards to social engagement and active allyship, what she calls solidarity. Um, yeah, and she's got some really interesting things to say about the relationship of like solidarity and friendship and how things can go sour and mutuality and equality. Um, and I think you highlighted the principal parts as I thumb through the text um, on my own here. Um, yeah, I think that, and it's a kind of really great setup for what we've got going on in chapter six. Yeah, um, because she refers back, she refers back to her own writings. Yeah, frequently in each chapter, it's almost like an onion. She's like layering and layering and layering. Um, and this one is chapter six, uh, Un Poquito de Justicia, um, A Little Bit of Justice. And that reminds me of that song, but it's completely misogynistic, but it's like a little bit of, and then he lists all the girl names. Oh, like a little bit of. Erica, yes, something, a little bit of Jessica. One. Yeah. <laughs> but so immediately I think a little bit of justice in my life. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but yeah, yeah. Um, I really appreciated this chapter and she does a great overview and the way that our interest in the chapter overlaps or at least um, works together well, is that you are picking up, um, she does a lot of listing and clear defining in this chapter in terms of what justice is going to look like and what it's not or what injustice is. And that's how she starts off, right? Like mm -hmm. um, this section that opens up and leads into what you're going to be talking about principally, which were the five modes of oppression. She starts off with uh, Latinas cries, um, starting point for understanding justice. And um, and then she's going to go into first naming the oppression because in order to understand what justice is going to look like, you have to understand what the injustice is. So right. a little bit of justice. Yes. Um, yeah. So should we get right into it? I think so. Awesome. Yeah. So uh, I wanted to, instead of sharing uh, my first block quote, I wanted to kind of go through what, um, Isasi Diaz calls women 
Um, I could be wrong. I they could be like really close. Um, but they generally don't don't get paid what they're worth. Um, and also we're looking at uh, gender exploitation. Um, and this reminded me a little bit of what uh, Kat Armas was talking about in her book, Awelita Faith. Um, she touches on this aspect of uh, Latina culture, Latin eh culture, sorry, I didn't enunciate. Um, but there's this aspect of like Latin machismo going on where kind of uh, the men uh, get to have the say and everything and then they just take advantage of the women in their life, basically. Um, uh, she also goes on to say that Latinas suffer exploitation in the churches. Um, they do a lot of unpaid labor there, um, helping out uh, the paid leaders who then uh, get take the credit. And then the second phase of oppression is marginalization. And this is where I had to pause for myself and think because if I use any two words interchangeably the most, it's oppression the oppressed and the marginalized. I tend to use those two words a lot, like to me, just I, to mean the same thing. Um, but Isasi Diaz goes on to say, this is perhaps the most dangerous form of oppression as marginalized people. Latinas are part of a category of people who are not seen as contributed, contributing to society and therefore are subject to severe material deprivation and even extermination. So the way I envision it is um, they're marginalized and that they are made invisible or they are made to seem really minuscule. Um, and there is a difference between marginalization marginalization now that I think about it and then when you're comparing it to oppression so I'm going to do my best from now on not to use those two words interchangeably <laughs> yes yes yeah and also she highlights how um this marginalization impacts the internal life of Latinas at the end of that paragraph, all this leads to a lack of self-respect, to identity crisis, to lack of self-worth. Um, oh yes, internalizing that marginalization. Yeah, you start yeah. to participate in that marginalization by marginalizing yourself because of the, um, the narrative that you've adopted. So you per it perpetuates itself. It's sadistic that way, really. That I that's one of the reasons why I think she calls it the most dangerous, because um, you just start to it becomes a part of who you are. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a great point. Um, and then the third so oppression is powerlessness, meaning so uh, the fact that Latinas uh, lack authority because there are people you know, above a pyramid who can exercise power above them. Um, and 
uh, I quote here, Latinas cannot presume as others in the society do that they will be trusted and respected unless they do something to forfeit that trust or respect. Latinas know that we have to earn trust, that we have to earn respect, and that we have to keep earning it or we will not have it. And then she, um, Isasi Diaz, goes on to talk about her experience with this in the classroom, how uh, students uh, wouldn't pay her the same respect that they might uh, pay, like, for instance, a white male, a white cishet male colleague. And then the fourth base of oppression is cultural imperialism. And uh, I quote, to experience cultural imperialism is to experience how the dominant meanings of a society render our particular Latina perspectives invisible. And it means to be stereotyped precisely as other or outsider. And again, like this is very different from like a general general um, oppression. Uh, yes, we can we can definitely see how cultural imperialism works itself out, especially in the United States. Like uh, those of um, a Latina and you know Hispanic cultures are othered and othered everywhere you go, um, and especially with the the crisis at like the the Mexican border that we've been we've been seeing a lot how that comes out and then the last and the fifth phase of oppression is systemic violence um, Latinas live with the fear of random unprovoked attacks on their persons or property which have no motive but to damage humiliate and uh, destroy them and here I was thinking about um, there's a crisis in Puerto Rico. Um, a lot of women are going missing. A lot of women are getting uh, murdered and um, trafficked and not many people can be bothered to do something about it. Um, and then that ties into the Uh, the point that Isasi Diaz makes about um, domestic violence. Uh, and she, she says, the possibility of, of displeasing her male partner who will show his displeasure by beating her, for example, will keep a Latina from going to women's meetings relating to church or community matters where she is appreciated or needed. So really it's like a, a cycle, a cycle of violence. Um, any, anything you wanted to add about those faces of oppression, Lauren? I think that what she does is offer a really concise way of um, creating a clear definition for these terms that I think we have adopted through exposure and gives them a life um, that causes me with you, like in concert with you to say, oh, I know how to use these words now. Yeah. So I'm all about, um, 
using like rather than being like you know how we we had confessed earlier in our episode that we tend to want to subvert someone like Isazi Diaz to the work of like Martin Luther or John Calvin and like we're just trying to disabuse ourselves of that tendency mm-hmm. um I want to make these definitions normative in terms of this is how, this is the mindset I want to have when I'm thinking about the idea of systemic violence. I've always thought of systemic violence. It's interesting because I kind of thought like, why end on systemic violence? Because that's like the Mm -hmm. big one, you know, but it's actually the one that's, it's like the way that she personalizes it, because I've always seen it as like corporate, institutional, not necessarily like, oh, we're all trapped in this. Mm-hmm. And she makes it more personal. She draws it down into all five of these spaces of oppression are all pulled into the personal life. And I think that the way that I use them in sermons is a little bit more vague. And I think by the body that she's put on the five faces here of oppression, it makes me want to take pause and to say, this is a really great beginning of like redefining what powerlessness is rather than doing it from my perspective or a downward perspective this is sort of a bottom-up perspective right Mm -hmm. like taking our experiences so I really appreciated the way that she highlighted these injustices and explained what they are because as we move into what's to come in this chapter an account of justice then you start to see where she's not just calling out. And that's one of the aspects of this chapter that's really important. It's not necessarily just calling out the five faces. Like she could have ended the chapter there and it would have been a powerful chapter, Mm -hmm. right? Be a nice little short chapter. I would have read it all in one day um, and it would have been absolutely fantastic. But for what I understand about Miharista theology is that it's not just about calling out the problem, but actually solving that problem in the way that Latinas are going to solve that problem. Yeah. And it's that, that for, that is normative for that experience. Um, Now I want to be also cautious with talking about these definitions and then appropriating them. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. I've not had some of these, um, I mean, I can, but it does challenge me to maybe I need to sit down and write these five words down and then write from my perspective, how I've experienced these things, um, rather than appropriating from uh, appropriating these definitions, um, and making them subverted to my whiteness. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a good point because I was thinking, you know, that, quite a few of the five if not most of the five I could apply to myself but in a different sense like mm-hmm. as women like of course we've been marginalized yes uh do we know what it's like to experience that from uh, the point of view of a woman who is brown no but we mm. have been like as a result of being women yeah um, so definitely yeah there's definitely a note um yeah like the note of caution is good like we shouldn't appropriate appropriate but it's still like i think uh isasi diaz sets a really good example by making these concrete um because a lot of times we do we do speak speak about these things but only in theory 
um, because we're 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 not living in the context that she is describing. Yeah, yeah. And how how much are we tied to that Phyllis, that Western philosophical school, that Greek philosophical philosophical school of trying to define these terms to encompass the so and called everyone? So when we think about Aristotle and um, something classic like the Nicomachean Ethics. Um, the idea of defining happiness as it should relate to every, everyone should aspire to this. Um, I think that that's maybe what's being called out for me is this tendency to want to have a universal definition of injustice, mm -hmm. a universal definition of systemic violence, a universal definition of um, powerlessness, a universal definition, like a very bland doesn't have any color to it, doesn't have any body to it, definition that can everyone can agree to, but what if that's just not the case? What if we do need to radically concretize these ideas so that when we speak to our group, we know how to use that terminology and then also be willing to understand that our unique interpretation of the definition of these five faces of oppression isn't the only interpretation of the definition of these five faces of, of, of oppression. Right, yeah. Because just because I haven't experienced something doesn't mean it's not real. I mean, I've, I mean, I'm trying to think of something I haven't experienced. It's late in the day, I've been up since four. Late in the day, it's only two, it's not no, even No, it two. is late if you've been up since four. <laughs> um, but like, you know, just because I haven't experienced the bookshelf that's sitting behind Sabrina right now, it doesn't mean that it's not real or it's like a background or a figment of, you know, like I can, I haven't, even though I haven't touched it, I haven't experienced it, I haven't engaged with it. Um, I can trust that it's a good bookshelf, you know, based off of your engagement with the bookshelf. Now, granted, that's a bad example because again, as I said, my brain's probably a little bit almost close to toasted right now, but it holds the point well enough. Um, I think we tend to, because we're so ingrained with that Western philosophical school of thought, which is to find these categorically all-encompassing and all-embracing definitions. But since when have those definitions, that's the irony of it, right? Those definitions have been strictly relegated to a specific group of people that's in control. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you know, like the, it's just, it's just amazing to me. So anyway, I, it's, I, I, that's what I like about this this part of the chapter is that it's challenging me to maybe maybe it's a good writing practice actually sit down and write down these five words and define them and then also allow them to exist alongside what Isazi Diaz is explaining here and not in a competitive way but we can have difference oh and that's actually she's going to talk about that um, but we can have differences existing alongside each other without making it all oh, we're just talking about the same thing or um, making it about fighting. Um, mm -hmm. You can acknowledge distinction and difference and um, allow that to just exist in that tension. Um, that's completely okay. Yeah, absolutely. So um, as we already kind of said, uh, Isasi Diaz spells out these faces of oppression um, because she's then going to tell us um, what now what all of the elements of this un poquito de justicia 
little bit of justice is going to look like. Um, and she lays out uh, eight elements, but we're not going to quote them. <laughs> we're not going to quote no, them all. No. <laughs> um, but I am going to touch on the third element, um, which is, and I quote uh, the the other side of the previous one. And the previous one, she talks about how uh, justice needs to be contextualized, it has to be concrete, and therefore it has to be historical. Um, and then, so for the third one, she says, um, our account of justice points to a discontinuity, uh, some continuity, not total discontinuity with our past and present reality. Um, and then I'm going to quote, I'm going to actually going to keep reading. Uh, this means that justice is, quote, not dependent on the possibilities inherent in the past. Uh, this continuity, this discontinuity is based on the role that the realization of the kingdom of God plays in Latina's uh, proyecto historico, historical project. Um, and then I underline this sentence too. The history of salvation, the realization of the kingdom of God does not happen apart from the daily struggles of Latinas to survive. And she quotes uh, Gustavo Gutierrez a lot mm. um, from A Theology of Liberation. And I, I, I looked at uh, the pages that she was quoting because I wanted to get like a fuller sense um, of what she was saying because it seemed like she was talking about an already not yet type of situation mm. like when you're talking about uh, eschatology and you're like oh god's kingdom is already but not yet and it's like this really this really vague kind of thing um, when you're talking about it outside of liberation theology uh, but i found another quote from uh, a theology of liberation on the same page where Isasi Diaz gets the quotes that she is using. And this quote says, um, moreover, we can say that the historical political liberating event is the growth of the kingdom and is a salvific event, but it is not the coming of the kingdom, not all of salvation. So we have the already, which seems like the concrete liberation, but we're still, we don't have like the fullness of salvation yet. But I mostly wanted to quote this because I, I want to know, like, I want to know what they mean by that. Like, what, what is the fullness of salvation? So like liberation in the here and now is part of it. So like, what, what is the rest of it? Um, so it kind of makes me want to read a theology of liberation because she does quote him, or Isasi Diaz does quote this guy a lot. <laughs> yeah. So, so it kind of makes me want to read this book next, a theology of liberation, to kind of find out uh, what they're talking about. Because I feel like yeah. I don't fully understand what they're getting at. I can understand. I can, again, I can understand, um, you know, that concrete, uh, a concrete and historical material um, justice is part of salvation, but what is the rest of it? 
I don't know. I, I do, I'm not exactly sure what they're getting at. Yeah, I do know. I remember last time we did mention that, um, and I always sort of have a little bit of an issue with this, but that there's this idea, at least in Asazi Diaz and in other places, other current existing theologians, um, that the progress that we are in like a liberating progress and that when we have that at some point in the future, there will be a just society and that's the society that God dwells with. Mm-hmm. And I don't like feeling like a guinea pig mm-hmm. in the process of acquiring justice. But I also err towards the idea that because we're humans and we have this com- this um, consistently manifesting desire for power and control that no matter what forms of justice we were able to acquire now, we're always gonna have to keep our eye out for injustice so that justice can always be done. And so this is kind of perpetual, perpetual revolution. Yeah. Um, and that comes in with, um, I believe Trotsky, but, um, but yeah, that idea that we're always fighting something and that um, that's the corrective, but that is might be my knee-jerk reaction in regards to this idea that there's this future society that's just going to be absolutely wonderful and perfect. And mm-hmm. um, uh, I don't know. And maybe that makes me more pessimistic, but I don't see how that's possible. Like, is there a society that God's just waiting for? Are we that lost? Yeah, is God, God waiting for us to like get our act together um yeah are we always going to have to like are we are we capable of living without injustice isn't that what fireflies all about or you know i'm talking about you know the show the space wild west um Oh yeah, I've heard it. I'm familiar with it, but I haven't really gotten into it that much. Yeah, the idea of this utopian society, if you watch the movie, oh, I can't give away the I can't give away the end of that movie, but it's so powerful because it's like you can't have a utopian society of perfection without essentially like creating monsters. Like it's so are we aren't we always in the process of keeping our eye out for potentially the oppressed? I don't know. I don't know. I just don't like when I hear that sort of like God's gonna do it. I'm like, no, I think God's in the suffering. I'm all with like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and like Ellie Bazell in terms of like God of the gallows. Like mm-hmm. that's the God that, you know, I think God's with me now, like in this fight, in this suffering in that so the cross tells me um not like god waiting for like another society in which everyone figures it out and gets it all done can we make our society better yes i'm not saying that we can't can human beings function in a, in a better way yes i think so but i think that each era of human existence isn't a betterment of the previous one but a shifting of what the problem is and what the good thing is um if that makes sense at all yeah that makes sense to me you know, like recently I was talking with a friend about time and how sometimes, because I read a lot of, um, I'm working on 
um, a text right now for something in September. And so I'm reading stuff from like, you know, the 1920s. And I just think about like someone like Friedrich Gogarten, like walking around and existing and thinking this is pretty modern. And me thinking this is pretty modern in my time and how that's the same thought process about two different eras, but are these eras all that different apart from maybe a different fashion sense and maybe I have more liberties, but then I also simultaneously have more challenges, you know, different challenges. Like, do we ever feel like things are like legitimately easier? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. I just don't, I just don't know if I can say that thing that progress is a real thing. Yeah, I think that's where I exist. Yeah, um, I would have to think about that. I mean, when you're in the midst of suffering, like you, it, like I think it's natural to kind of dream about this place where your suffering doesn't exist, and like there will be no more suffering. Um, but like I, I I don't I don't quite understand like how how to put those pieces together. Like it kind of it kind of reminds me of this um, post millennial theology, which I was never really kind of a fan of. But I think that's more of like a white kind of like dominionist theology. Oh, that's where, good stuff. Yeah, where <laughs> like God is just gonna establish God's kingdom on earth, like no matter what, like forget about what every forget about everyone. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, I, I have to think about it. Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting subject matter. Um, and you know, I mean, but simultaneously, I like to, I like to be, um, I have a very vivid and active hope of some sort of union of heaven and earth and God and being present in God. I'm not afraid to say like, even as an academic that yes, I do have a, according to my tradition, I have a very vivid and active hope in a bodily resurrection that is, you know, something, but I'm always curious about how that dualism, you know, impacts me or whatever, but, um, you know, it's, it doesn't make me check out whatever it is, whatever that accusation is that I get so tired of hearing, well, it just makes you check out, but no, I'm for the love of God, not checked out at all. Trust me. Um, but anyway, it's just, it's just an interesting thing to think about, but I know that historically she has said, especially in the previous chapter, there was a strong hint of that we are going to work. We're part of this whole process of getting towards this society. That's going to be really, really great. And so we are, see ourselves as the workers in that, but then I just look at it through the capitalist lens and I'm like, oh no, like my labor is being stolen from me. I'm disconnected from my product, you know, (laughs) (laughs) I'm just God's factory worker. No. Oh, <laughs> Adam Smith and God are one. Okay. That is fire. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So, but anyway, that's where I think, I think maybe I'm reading too many different books at once and now it's all blurring together. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, it would be really great. And if you do read that text, you're going to have to enlighten us. If you read it between now and chapter 10, with chapter 10 being the last chapter. Um, yeah. So... Um, now I pick up talking about the fourth element of the of a Muharissa account of justice, 
And this is what I was sort of hinting at before, which is recognizing and dealing with differences rather than just acknowledging the problem of differences. Mm -hmm. Okay, first of all, there's no problem with differences. Yeah, there's none. There's no, it's not a problem to be different. We, dominant group um, speaking, will see a problem with difference, especially if the difference results in revolt. Mm-hmm or an assertion of self or self-differentiation, right? So if mm-hmm. I'm in the dominant group and I wanna have a hierarchy of control, then difference is going to be exceptionally problematic because it's gonna be threatening that there could be this alternate way of living. I'm thinking of like heteronormativity coming up against LGBTQ community and like the the issue of, not the issue, well, maybe it's an issue, the issue of marriage, um, <laughs> you know, and like, can, you know, a woman and a woman couple, um, can a triad, triad, you know, like, but the heteronormative group would say, absolutely not, because marriage is this one thing, and this is the normal way of looking at it. Um, but really, if you're secure in where you are, then you're just like, well, here I am, a cis heterosexual female, um, and I am married to a cis head uh, male. We're working just fine. Someone else across the street who's getting married and uh, two men or two women or maybe a triad. Um, I, why does that threaten me? You know, um, so why can't we, difference is a problem, empirically difference isn't a problem. We make it a problem because we want to have our power and control. So Mm -hmm. to actually go back to what she's saying, she says, Asaze Diaz says, this means that justice has to move beyond acceptance that there are different ways of being to real interaction. Interaction between those who are different is not possible unless one recognizes how cultural imperialism functions in the United States, how those who do not belong to the dominant group are conceptualized as other, as inferior and deviant. Interaction among Latinas and non-Latinas will lead to participation and inclusion in a way that does not require us to renounce who we are. Interaction leads to opportunities for Latinas to make their own contribution to what is normative in society. To have a papal, a papel protagonizo, is that a hard C or soft C? Uh, It's a, a hard C and a hard G too. Protagonist role in society to recognize and deal with differences to embrace differences is to reject assimilation to reject an essentialist meaning of difference that places groups and persons in categorical opposition to mutual exclusion. Now what I wrote in my margin is um, three words, diversity, inclusion, and belonging. Um, And I've brought these up before and I bring them up frequently in my IRL life, not just my podcasting life. Mm -hmm. Um, But there is a distinction. All three terms acknowledge a difference. Yep. Okay, when you say diversity, you can have a diverse table with different people or a diverse room with a bunch of different people there, but who's actually sitting at the table making all the decisions. Mm -hmm. And then inclusion becomes now there's a diverse group of people at the table. And so there's differences between person to person to person, but still who is who's doing the dominant amount of decision making and talking. 
Belonging is when you get to speak for yourself, when you get to self-differentiate, self-articulate, and self-decide, self-judge. Um, this is what is normal for me. And allowing that not to have to now defend, be have to defend oneself to the dominant group because in a system of belonging, there isn't a dominant group. But it doesn't mean that we're that it's all just like, oh, we're all one uniform persons. Um, but that we are individually all present at the table as we are. Um, and that that's okay. Um, yeah, it's a shift between the um, moving from top down evaluation of others, right? Because that's that whole paradigm when you're doing a top down, you're like, I'm me and I'm determining that this is a table and that's a phone and there's Sabrina, you know what I'm saying? Like, mm -hmm. but if it's bottom up, then these things are going to inform me. And so I think that what she's arguing for is that justice looks like a bottom up um, self-actualization of um, being who you are as you are without fear of being eclipsed or assimilated or um, absorbed into some monolithic pot. No, yes, I am very much alluding to something much larger and much more violent. But anyway, um, I really found that quote to be pretty powerful. Yeah, um, and to extend kind of your table analogy, um, uh, Kat uh, Amas, as I already mentioned, uh, she also talks about this in her book. Um, but she is talking about how she doesn't agree with the popular saying that, you know, we need to invite everyone to the table. Right. Um, because uh, Latino women have been setting their own tables like yes if anything we need to go we need to be invited to their tables yes um, that's when we have kind of like this uh reci reciprocity that would indicate that that some kind of belonging is going on and that um everyone can exercise their own autonomy and their own as you said uh, self-differentiation yeah, and I think that's really, that's powerful. It reminds me of something that um, I watched Robert Monson before I interviewed him for my podcast, oh, a while ago. Um, he sent me some womanist, a panel of womanist theologians talking. And one of the points that I gathered from there was, I don't even know if I want to be at that table. That table doesn't even want me there. And so this idea of this image of like one table where everyone's getting along is sort of bogus when it actually, when you actually, um, it sort of exposes the idea of um, this, uh, that there is still this one table and apparently it's my table. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so yeah, so I like that you brought that up because I think it's really important to say that it's not just actually about one specific table, um, even though that helps to explain the three different terminologies, um, mm -hmm. that the idea of belonging would be able to feel comfortable, that you wouldn't have to ascribe to or try to fight your way into that table, and then to acquiesce to whatever demands are being placed on you so that you fold in to being an acceptable version of you so that you can fit into the table. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something that I think a lot of us have experienced as we have um, 
worked to, you know, manipulate the, the system so that we can be included in it, even if it means that we are selling ourselves out to some extent, or at least hiding a portion of ourselves. Um, so, so yeah, I like that you added that part from Cats, um, and I'm glad her book is so good. Um, I oh, haven't read it. Great. Yeah, it sounds really excellent. Um, all right, so then moving on to the the other quote that I had, which is just a small little hop skip over to page 119. And this is the fifth um, element of Muharista account of justice. Because embracing differences requires interaction and because interaction cannot happen without honest dialogue, this is quoting Asazi Diaz, by the way, which in turn requires equalization of power among those dialoguing, the fifth element of Muharista account of justice has to deal with power. A Muharista understanding of power like our account of justice starts from the underside of history from those who are powerless. Power, therefore, has to be understood both as a personal and a structural process that can be used for oppression or liberation. Oppressive power uses force, coercion, and or influence to control, to limit, to self-determination, the self-determination and decision-making of individual persons or groups of persons. Liberative power is used to transform oppressive situations, um, situations of domination in a liberative use of power. Um, anyway, she goes on to make a quotation. Um, and I like this because it reminded me of, um, I recently studied Ephesians 4, 25 to 5, 2. And if you are an Episcopalian, you know why I was studying Ephesians 4, 25 to 5, 2, because it was one of our epistle readings a couple of Sundays ago. Yeah. <laughs> and I took it upon myself every time I was preaching, I would have preached from Ephesians. Anyway, one of the things that stood out to me was anger. This popped out, the use of anger, like um, be angry and do not sin. Okay, other words, be angry and do not miss the mark. So what I argued was that in this anger, we're supposed to hit the mark. <laughs> it's not about not having anger. It's about using our anger rightly. And this is what it is about power. You can have power that is septic and violent and does its thing about you know domination and um, control going back to the faces of oppression power implements those five or negative power can implement those five but on the flip side power can be um used in the reverse and so you can use power well um i am a strong woman and i could use that power to dominate my children or i can use that power to uplift and edify my children right and so it's an it's about shifting the focus and how we use strength and power. Like I remember in in when I was teaching in high school, and I would have the kind of snarky um, male who would say, "Well, equality says that if a woman hits me as hard as she can, I can hit her as hard as I can." <laughs> I, 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 yeah, like I, I was always like, well, but do you really want to hit a woman as hard as you can? You think that's, is that, is that the equality you're going for? If we look at, you know, not all, you know, we do bell curves. So we understand that like maybe the strongest man is stronger than the strongest woman, but along the way, there's like a variation. Like I am definitely stronger than a number of men. Um, but at the same time, my husband who never works out, never lifts any weights is always stronger than I am. And so if I were to lean into Daniel and punch him with all my might, he would hurt. 
he could kill me if he punched me with all of his might, right? And so the understanding of power there is understanding um, how to use it and for love. And that's that overarching theme in Ephesians is you can be angry, use it rightly, use it to bolster the beloved, use it to oppress the beloved, use it to correct injustice, not to be not to use your anger to cause more oppression or cause more violence. Um, and then I was simultaneously thinking about the idea of, um, and this is something Zuela says in Dorothy Zuela says in her book, um, her revolutionary book about it's a revolutionary poems. Um, but one of the things is she's like, I don't, we don't, feminism, feminists don't want to be men. We want to be women. We don't want to be the violent creatures who are, are, you know, creating small family units and lording it over them. Like, and I love that poem so much. It didn't get a lot of traction on Instagram. Um, but it just struck a chord in me because every part of me wants nothing to do with being like men, specifically white men. Um, and I think I tweeted out recently that I've grown a strong distaste of the definition of woman badass as that which looks just like a man. Mm-hmm. And I don't want that. I'm done with that. I want to be just who I am. And again, I say this as a woman who, again, Wednesday is my weightlifting day. I lift a lot of weights and they're, they're pretty heavy. I have biceps. Um, you know, like I, I'm very strong. I have no desire to want to kick someone's ass to prove myself as like a badass. Like I wanna be whatever that is in my terminology. It reminds me also what Nietzsche says at the end of the problem or or beyond good and evil where he criticizes women who wanna be like men. Now I know he's not a feminist and so I'm gonna take this very gingerly and very creatively but I sometimes get the feeling that he's like, women have a lot of power in their own. They don't need to demote themselves to be like the violent man. And that's how I read that. And I'm like, I'm not arguing that like, I can't kick someone's ass, I could. I'm saying, I don't want that to be the measure of which that I am like impressive, that I can function. Like I want nothing to do with the system that the men have created that is just violent and oppressive. I don't wanna argue like a man. I don't wanna do academics like a man. I don't wanna do podcasting like a man. And granted, those are principally all of my examples, except for Dorothy Zuela, who I have fallen in love with and is my big sister in the academic world with her two influences being Gogarten and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So holler, Um, but I want to do it as I do it in my interpretation of what feminine is. And I think we have these, and again, this goes back to the beginning of what you were defining in terms of the ideas of injustice and their definitions don't have to be universal. And we can express ourselves, we can manifest our femininity and our masculinity or our neither of both, whatever way we want to. And that difference can live with difference and that can be really okay. And we can go more than just acknowledge it, we can dialogue with it and learn from it. And it doesn't mean that I now have to ascribe to Sabrina's interpretation of femininity or um, someone else's interpretation of masculinity. I don't have to conform myself to someone's interpretation of masculinity that is about oppressing me. You know what I'm saying? Like there's there's a way about it. But that little paragraph actually struck a few chords in me um, in terms of um, being powered to be you and to use that power well 
for others and that orientation that I see happening in a feet in the book of Ephesians in that divine love and being the beloved, being the beloved children of a loving God and how God uses God's power in a way that is mind blowing. God could, according to that text, according to the old, the first Testament and the, and the second one, uh, we ascribe to the notion that God is a very powerful God and that God could open up the ground and swallow us all up in it, but God didn't. God entered the ground in God's self and rescued us. And even in our poor judgment, when we killed Jesus, nailed Jesus, nailed the good, nailed God to the cross and said, job well done, humanity. <sighs> Polished off our nails and we we're like, oh yeah. God rescue, God's vengeance is like demonstrated in, in a loving way that actually gives us life and not death. And so it's just profound to see. And I like to call it the maternal love of God at that point, but um, I'm trying to claim as much as I can of the divine into the um, overarching idea of the feminine. Um, but anyway, so that's that little paragraph just struck a lot in me, that idea of power and using it and using it well and where we can and having it. And that's the thing is that everyone should have their own power. Yeah, and I like uh, how, I'm not sure who she's quoting in that little block quote um, that follows the portion that you quoted, uh, but she talks about how it's not the, uh, how did she put it? The subordinate, the subordinate is not just taking what they need, what they need to learn uh, from the dominant, but it's rather that uh, we're sharing. And I really like that picture of reciprocity. And I wish that uh, my view of humanity could like see for the possibility <laughs> in that um, because we're just so we are so into the like take taking taking things and like uh uh using power for our own means and revenge and things like that mm -hmm. so I like that the picture that she paints there yeah yeah I have been really just um so transformed by this book and um, the way that it asks me to, can you think about this differently? Can you think about that differently? Can you think about this differently? That's like every page is just like, huh, 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 mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And that's what I have. And then she teases out some more, but I feel like we, we explained too many more of them than why buy the book. Yeah, exactly. You guys, um, everyone listening is just going to have to read it for themselves yes and then she ends the whole entire chapter on this idea of no greater love a matter of justice and this is the thing is that i think and I, I i've said this before in regards to critiquing my own episcopal tradition is that we have there's been a long time where we launched into a discussion of divine love or god is love in such an abstract way that it had no material it was very neoliberal in presentation and it's really ha god has to have a more material grounding um and when we look at the exhortative chapters of the epistles that's where that teasing that out as what it looks like right now doing essentially what isaze diaz does in this chapter doing that from the pulpit teaching it embedded into 
um, the proclamation of Christ, that it continues in that mode of proclaiming Christ or builds out of that. Um, but it's really true. Like we love is active. It's, and it's not just this ambiguous, um, weird thing that sort of seems like, oh, and that makes me feel all fluffy and nice, but it should actually be challenging. Um, I was reading today in, I can't remember what book of Bart I was reading. Could have been Bart's ethics. It could have been Romans. Um, but the, it's not that we're to preach law and then gospel. It's that the one word preached, Christ crucified and raised, is either law or gospel, <laughs> is law and gospel. Love can be, when you ask someone to love someone radically in a very specific way, it can be off-putting at first. It can be condemning because you're not doing it. Or maybe it sounds like a word of comfort because you desperately need that. You know what I'm saying? Like it's it, we have no control over where that word lands, um, but it was a really beautiful correction to so much of our the um, like Missouri Synod American Evangelical Lutheran inspired law and gospel houses of thought that just seem to be very much about protecting the status quo and not offending anyone because offense is bad. I'm not necessarily sure that's true. Hmm. I've said yeah, that's like a whole nother podcast series <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly exactly I actually brought that up with Lydia Wiley Kellerman when I was speaking with her about her sandbox revolution and I was like you know your chapters are offensive right and I said I, that's not bad it's good but there were plenty of times where I was like so well I think that's a great place to land I hope if yeah. you are listening to us go on and on about this book that you are reading or plan to read it uh, and drop us a line and let us know uh, yeah. what you think. Yeah, that would be great. That would be great. Um, who's reading it right now on Twitter that we both follow? Ryan? I've seen Ryan tweet about it. I've yeah. seen uh Robert yeah. uh, tweet about it he might yeah. be finished because he reads I get the sense he reads pretty fast um mm -hmm. I've seen a couple other people quote it oh Dr. Nathan Cartagena whom I talked to about Aquinas yeah. I think he was quoting it I think he might be reading it too yeah, yeah. so yeah. if you want to yeah let us know yeah. if you're reading it and what you think yeah. I think, was it, was it Ryan or maybe Ryan or Robert? I don't know, but they said, every time I pick up the book, I think about you guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, but yes, please. It is such a great exposure and wonderful, wonderful contribution to humanity. Um, so with that, uh, is that it? That's all. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. Catch yeah. you next time. You betcha. Thanks for stopping by. This was Seminary for the Rest of Us. As always, Sabrina Reyes-Peters here, your host and producer. Uh, find us on the web at seminary.show. Send us an email at seminary.show at gmail.com 
Uh, if you're into Twitter and Instagram, those handles are in the show notes. And last but not least, if you want to show a little extra love, go ahead and give this little podcast a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much.